May it please the court, counsel, for the record, Eric Magnuson, on behalf of the petitioner, Mark Kudrowski. A trial judge goes beyond the role of gatekeeper and usurps the function of the jury as a fact finder when the judge rejects the opinion of a qualified expert who has employed industry and governmental recognized testing methods to reach a uh, testing results that the court admits are themselves reliable. But the judge rejects that opinion because he thinks the expert should have used different testing parameters. That is reversible error. The error in this case was exacerbated by the fact that the judge didn't do it during the trial on a Rule 50 motion post-trial, which is directed only at the sufficiency of the evidence that is in the record, the judge made an evidentiary ruling. That is contrary to the guidance of this court and common sense and fairness. And we ask that you reverse the Court of Appeals and remand this case for consideration of the new trial issue that's not related to the evidentiary ruling that has not yet been addressed. Viewing the evidence in a light most favorable to the verdict, because that's what we have to do, um, the jury concluded that Mark Kudrowski took off from the Lake Elmo Airport in his uh, uh, small airplane and lost power and crashed as he was trying to return to the airport. The loss of power is significant. Kudrowski told that to the uh, first responders when they tried to drag him from the wreckage. Don Summers, a 40-year mechanical engineer, FAA-certified airplane mechanic, uh, done thousands of accident reconstructions, said that he examined the propeller, first of all, and the propeller hub. And based on his experience and expertise, he concluded that the engine had little or no power as it plowed into the, uh, uh, the bean field. Now, that wasn't challenged by the district court at all. So Summers said, I've got to figure out why there wasn't power to that engine. The first thing he did was he tried to run the engine after they repaired some of the parts on it to see how it, uh, how it worked. He put it on a dynamometer, something that tests horsepower generation, and found that this engine was producing 46% less power uh, than it was supposed to. Again, that's not a test that was challenged. He then said, well, I've got to figure out why. And he did a complete teardown of the engine and found, in his opinion, no reason for the loss of power other than the fuel pump. And I think that's critical because, again, if you accept the evidence in a light most favorable to the verdict, we're now focused on the pump only and the heart of the engine. He then said, Counsel, well, um, I know... Are you, are you saying that even if the bench test had never been done, that Mr. Summers could have opined on causation just based on his other work? Absolutely. Why? Why? Because, as this court said in Schultz versus Fiegel, I believe, and as other courts have said, you view the, Giannotti's another case, you, you look at the entirety of the expert's opinion and you decide if it is sufficient to provide the jury with enough information, factual information, so they wouldn't be speculating. And so if he eliminated all other causes, and let's say he, all they had, the jury had the proof that the pump was defective, which again is not something, even the trial judge said, there's no way to challenge the fact this pump is defective. 
then it's not too great a leap, uh, as the Supreme Court said in GE versus Joyner, to conclude that no other cause for the loss of power that we accept other than the pump and the pump's defective. But he went one further, and that shouldn't disqualify his opinion. What he said was, I need to figure out how much gas is going through the pump uh, compared to what it needs to go through. Now, his investigation was done pre-suit. He asked Lycoming, give me the specifications that uh, uh, I should use for full throttle because we're taking off and climbing. We're not cruising. We're not, I mean, it's like when you step on the gas from a stop sign with your car. You really give it the gas, you get up to speed, you let off. Well, this was claim, plane was climbing. Uh, Lycoming wouldn't give him the specifications. Aero Industries makes an identical pump. The FAA lets you switch between the two. So he contacted somebody at Aero. He had somebody from his office do it. And they said, well, it's Exhibit 207. Um, here's what the pump should do for full throttle. Uh, and gave him the specifications. He then put the pump, remember, he hasn't taken it apart yet, he put the pump on an industry standard piece of testing equipment, a, 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 a flow bench, and he ran it at the specifications he got from Aero. This engine requires 105 pounds per hour of fuel to run at full throttle. So he expected, when he ran it at those specs, he'd get roughly 105 pounds per hour. He got less than half. He got 48 pounds per hour. So he said, let's see. I know that there wasn't power when it crashed. I know there's nothing wrong with the engine itself. I know the engine on the test that I did after the accident produced less than half of the power it should. I now know that the pump produces less than the flow I expected. He then took it apart and documented the numerous uh, uh, manufacturing. Mr. Mr. Magnuson, if I may, let's back, let's back up just a little bit. You know, as I listened to you here today and as I read your brief, um, obviously you're acknowledging that our standard of review on this, what was at base an evidentiary ruling, is abuse of discretion. But I almost get the sense that you're, you're asking for something more rigorous than that, because given all that you've just told us, uh, respondents are going to get up and say, in part, well, but he didn't test to the proper parameters, and so right. the methodology was, was improper. And in Doe and other cases, we, we really focused hard on it's the methodology right. that is key. And so I'm wondering, you, you know, it, it, what you're at, what, what's the lens that, that you want us to look at this through? Because typically it would be abuse of discretion, but I almost hear you asking for something more rigorous. Maybe not de novo, but, but something. And so well, I'm trying to, if you can hone in on that for me, because I think that, obviously, that, that's key. Right. First of all, I would have to say, if it were abuse of discretion, this is an abuse of discretion, but it's not that. When a trial, Let me stop you there. Why? Why would it why be an, an abuse, abuse of yes. discretion? Mm -hmm. Because the judge substituted his judgment for the expert on a value, on a value. And I think that gets to your point. You, the test, you know, at page 38 of our brief, I, I say what the court's rule should be. It should unequivocally state that when a qualified expert's opinion is based on a reliable method, you mentioned methodology, there's no question about the method. The tests that he well, used Oh, but I were think reliable. respondent is saying there is a question about the method because the method would have to include 
the, their parameters as, and that's key for this particular case. And we honed in on that right. on Doe. So, so, so if, I, if I could just finish my thought. Okay, the method of how you test flows is not disputed. You put it on this machine and you test them. The question is whether he used the right values to evaluate the results. And when, here's, here's to me the, the line. There's a difference between method and values. Is that what I'm hearing Well, you method say? is how you do it. Values is what input in, in values you put in and the conclusions that you draw. Okay, but here, if you, if you stop talking about process, if you stop talking about procedure, and you start talking about the facts, you know, he tested to, uh, you know, to 23 to 25 PSI instead of 2 or 30. Now the judge is weighing the evidence. He's saying, well, different facts would give you a different result. And that's what you cross-examine experts on. And in fact, on. counsel, didn't the district court judge actually, during the course of um, motions, indicate that, that the issue was going to go to the weight? Absolutely. If you look at the transcript of uh, the judge's ruling in the middle of trial um, on the directed verdict motion, it starts at 2553. Um, he goes right down the line, and he could have written my brief based on that. And nothing changed after that, except Lycoming uh, put on their case. Well, that's why I'm having, I'm having trouble as to what the scope of review really is. We know what the scope of review is for the grant of a JMAL. Right. But this is an issue embedded within the grant of a JMAL. And, and Incorrectly you can, so, An evidentiary issue um, where we typically evaluate on an abuse of discretion basis. In this case, we've got the district court saying X at one point which we would evaluate on an abuse of discretion basis, and then not X at a later point, which we would evaluate on an abuse of discretion basis. Do we apply to abuse of discretion when the district court has said two diametrically opposite things? No, because the reason the court said two diametrically opposite things is it substituted its judgment for that of the expert. If, if the way you do tests is okay, and it was here, and if the theory behind why you're doing the tests is okay, it's reliability. Reliability has to be, the test you do has to, in some way, prove the conclusion you're trying to reach. You also have to have data that is reliable. The judge said the data is unquestionably reliable. But I think he got the wrong inputs to get the data. The minute you go beyond, here's how you test it, and you go to, but he put the wrong data in, you've now crossed the line between gatekeeper and fact finder. It's up to the jury to decide if he should have tested it. Remember, there's a range of values here. Two PSI that, that the judge insisted he test to comes from this drawing specification. There is no evidence in the record that Lycoming ever tested to two PSI. All 2PSI does is it says all the parts in the pump work and stuff flows through because there's no pressure stopping it at the other end. But remember, the pump has to push against pressure because the fuel comes out of the pump and goes into something called a servo, a fuel servo. Lycoming's own witnesses agreed. You have to have at least 18 PSI 
for the servo to work efficiently. Mr. Magnuson, could help me just a little bit further with um, yes, the scope of review. How is what the district court did here different than what the district court did in Doe? Well, in Doe, the whole question was whether the, the theory of repressed memory was sufficiently reliable um, for an expert to base an opinion on. Here, there's no question that a flow bench test is a reliable way to measure the fuel that goes through the engine or the, the pump to the engine. It's, it's just not applicable at all. The question then is, in the expert's judgment, did he prove that the flow was inadequate? And he did that by saying, well, what do you need to run the engine? And I think, you know, one of the stark examples of ignoring the evidence, weighing the evidence, if you go to our reply brief at 10, and I apologize for the small print. Uh, we tried to highlight it. It's exhibit uh, 2116, uh, page three. I have it on my computer and I can blow it up really big. But you'll see this is, this is a fuel pump endurance test run by Lycoming on engines. And they run the test at the same RPMs and at the same pressure that Kodowski, or I'm sorry, that Summer used on his test. And if his test was wrong, if his choice of parameters was wrong and it artificially depressed the fuel flow, then these numbers would not be what they are. But they come out to exactly what Summer expected. And these are on healthy pumps. Lycoming is testing its own pumps to see how they work. And if these tests show the expected value and Summer's test shows half the expected value, then that is a valid basis for the expert to say, aha, uh -huh, my theory that it's not producing enough fuel is validated. And, and counsel, and I, because we're in a JMOL setting, um, as I understand it, the court can look at any, any evidence that's in the record to uphold a jury's verdict. And must look so at that, it in a light e most favorable. Even if Summer hadn't relied upon this in his testimony, does that mean that we can look at this substantively, this chart? Well, that chart was, if you look at Summer's PowerPoint, um, it's, a, it's a court exhibit. I think it's court exhibit P. The court didn't let the PowerPoints go to the jury. But you, if you, it, it helps to track Summer's testimony. But slide 79 of his PowerPoint is... Uh, refers specifically to this document. This document was in evidence. And Summers explained to the jury uh, what it meant. I want to talk a little bit about the JMAL issue because I think, first of all, I don't think you need to answer the question of whether you will follow Weissgram versus Marley. Now, federal law on JMAL procedure is dramatically different than Minnesota law. It is a prerequisite in federal court to review on appeal that you bring a JMAL motion at the close of the plaintiff's case, the close of all of the evidence, and after trial. That's the Unitherm case. We don't have that rule. Um, secondly, if you look at Rule 50, it says the judge decides whether the record supports the verdict, basically. It says absolutely nothing about the ability of the judge to go in and say, well, we're going to toss that piece out. That's a new trial motion. 
And as Coombs said, as this case said, the, the uh, amicus brief found this one. I missed it. The Coble case, 1926, Reinhardt versus Colton, which we do cite. It says, look, J-Mall tests the record as it exists. There's no license to the trial judge to trim up the record and then decide J-Mall. If you make a mistake on letting a piece of evidence in, you grant a new trial. And do about you, Rochester Wood. Rochester Wood, uh, I don't think the court carefully considered it. I don't think it was uh, front of mind. It conflicts with Reinhardt. It conflicts with Coble. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, this court's decided a lot of cases, and sometimes issues... Uh, so, Counselor, are you suggesting we totally ignore the federal precedent? Because when you look at the federal precedent, it does seem to suggest pretty um, routinely that J-Mall is, is an appropriate way, for the appropriate um, mechanism for the court to use if it gets to that point after the verdict and it thinks, nope, the, the evidence just, just doesn't support it. Uh, for a matter of just judicial efficiency and all that, because we could, if 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 on appeal it turns out that that the district court was wrong, you just reinstate the verdict. So it, it seems to make a lot of sense, and there's certainly a, quite a bit of precedent to support that. Okay, first of all, you don't need to get to the issue if you decide that Judge Guthman was simply in error in excluding Summers' causation opinion based on one out of many tests. Remember, he did a complete forensic examination. The flow bench test was one part of all of that. Okay? But if you decide he was wrong to exclude the testimony, then when he did it and how he did it is at best a footnote. It's an unwise procedure to adopt in this state because... And counsel, didn't the district court... Um, um, overrule three objections based on foundation? Yes. And that was during the course up of the, to the point of trial? Well, yes, and that gets, that gets to another point. You know, you're going to hear from my colleague that, you know, this wasn't a surprise. Everybody knew what the dispute was. You know, this had been, you know, beaten to death pre-trial. But when you're in trial and you say, I offer the opinion, Your Honor, and the judge uh, hears objection foundation, but nobody says it's this, this, and this. And the judge says, uh, overruled, the opinion comes in. Two things. First of all, you're not required to say, well, you know, that might not stand up. He may change his mind later. I'm going to keep laying foundation, even though it's in. Pendleton. Uh, Although uh, it seems one... to me, didn't the judge say early on, you know, you proceeded your peril? The peril was, he, he made that statement pre-trial, and the peril was at trial, he may rule that not enough foundation was made. He didn't say when the objection was overruled, of course, you're proceeding at your peril, I may change my mind. As a matter of fundamental fairness... Are you saying, Mr. Madison, that Lycoming's counsel never, they were never specific about what what was the actual concern with the foundation? Because, I mean, when did the parameters issue come up? It had to have come up. Well, I guess that's a question. Did it come up? It, it came up repeatedly in the pretrial uh, rulings. So okay. why isn't that sufficient? Do they have to keep, keep raising it as they go through trial when you know from pretrial we that that's their concern? We've been talking about a rule of law. What rule of law do you adopt with regard to JMAL? Okay. And, and it is unfair 
to do it after the fact when you've been told at trial you've laid enough foundation. Because, counsel, you rely on the court's rulings to progress your case. That's right. And if you say, no, it's really okay to change it later, and you proceed at your peril, if the judge says, I'm going to let that in, and you say, well, I'll count on that, but the judge may change it later, it's, it would be a bad rule of law to say you better keep laying foundation at that point. Let, let me go to um, the rule of law that you would have the court adopt on the JMAL question because Rule 50.02 clearly, at least I think it's clear, permits a uh, district court after the evidence is in to, to make a ruling uh, as a matter of law. What you're suggesting here today would in some measure limit that rule. Not at all. It would say you can make a ruling as a matter of law on the record as it exists, but you may not trim the record. You may not modify the record. That's a new trial motion. And that's the distinction that Kernow makes. That's what Reinhardt talks about. It's not appropriate to use a judgment as a matter of law, which tests the sufficiency of the evidence based on everything in the record. By and, saying, and you're saying that gonna, didn't happen here? It, it didn't happen here. What the judge said was, I'm throwing Summers' opinion out. Now I'll uh, consider Jamal. Where in Rule 50 does it say the judge gets to exclude evidence and then rule? It doesn't. So your, your argument would be, at worst, from your client's perspective, um, the result ought to be from this court in order for a new trial. Well, I, I think that is an absolute worst case basis. I think it is clear that Judge Guthman was just wrong. Judge Guthman decided he knew which parameters should be used. He ignored the fact that Summer, remember, he's trying to figure out what's going on. Lycoming won't give him the specifications. He gets them from an identical pump manufacturer and says, well, based on these, I expect it's going to be 105 pounds per hour. And he tests it at the same RPMs and the same PSI, and he comes out with 48.4. He then, during discovery, finds Lycoming documents, like the one in the reply brief, that use exactly the same test, exactly the same parameters, RPM and PSI, and come up with 105. All that does Counsel, is confirm it. Yes, Your Honor. Um, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical. Oh, good. Um, I know. <laughs> Um, so let's assume that the plaintiffs during their case put on the testimony of an expert and the judge rules that it's admissible. Yes. But then during the defendant's case, something very dramatic happens. Like they prove that the expert committed perjury and actually oh, isn't the person that they purport to be. So then we get to the end of the case and there's a motion for judgment as a matter of law because this expert's testimony was just a farce. I'm not saying that's what happened here. Thank you. But, but, <laughs> um, you know, but what does the trial court do in that situation? You know, that's a completely different situation. The judge, while the trial's going on, has the ability to police the courtroom and to say, you know, that testimony shouldn't have come in. I am striking it. Got anything else? And if the answer is no, uh, grant a directed verdict. But to do it after trial on JMAL, it, it, it isn't so, you know, I don't want to say it's not so bad in this case because it is bad, but imagine 
any other civil case where we don't have required JMAL motions during trial. Federal courts do, okay? And so you don't make a motion for JMAL. Um, you don't have to defend it. And after trial on a Rule 50 motion, and assume it's just a Rule 50 motion, the judge makes evidentiary rulings. It's just completely unfair at that point in time. And Counsel. so when you do it after trial, and you're only doing it on Rule 50, you, you're not supported by the rule or logic. Counsel, um, you talked about what else. I want to ask factually in this case, if you had had the opportunity, if the trial court had granted the JMAL at trial, what else would, would have come in? Had granted the JMAL at trial? Uh, after trial. If the, without, if the motion without striking, for... Without striking Summers... No, he struck Summers' testimony at trial. Right. What other what other, what other foundation? I'm trying sure. to get at your. Uh, yes, it, the uh, addendum to our brief has a very long post post uh, post post trial <laughs> affidavit from Donald Summer saying these are all the things that I would have talked about. There's also an affidavit from Thomas Fuller. It's document 512. It has 17 attachments to it. Five, nine, seven, seventeen are all additional lycoming tests where they used the same parameters, and so the evidence that would have been in. I think what's what's critical, you know, we come back to Judge Hudson's questions about how do we know when the judge is, you know, gone beyond gatekeeper and become a fact finder? It's when the judge starts to weigh the evidence. So two examples of weighing, and then I'm going to save my rebuttal time. Um, are when the judge is talking... You know um, your red light's on. Yeah, I know, and I'm, okay. I'm, I don't want to use too much of it. Um, when the judge is talking post-trial about um, these, these exhibits, so at page 16 of the judge's um, uh, uh, order, uh, he's discussing the prior problems that Kudrowski had that, you know, related to the fuel pump, and the judge says it's undisputed that each problem could be explained by other causes. I'm sorry, the expert said no, they weren't. So when the judge starts saying, well, it could be or could be, now we're into weighing the evidence. At page 22 of the post-trial order, note 9, says um, he dismisses the explanation of the additional foundation Summers could have laid by saying, well, those things weren't prominent in his opinion. I'm sorry, prominent, weighing, how much weight do you give it? It's absolutely clear that what Judge Guthman did here was he said, I've got a qualified expert, reliable methodology. I'm going to have a question about the inputs. Well, you know, you, you have said repeatedly in the cases that we cite to you, but Sentinel Management is, is a, 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 a key example. When the, Lloyd, when the judge says, I'm sorry, when the expert says, I'm going to use this parameter, and the other side says, you should do this test instead, that goes to weight, not foundation. I am into my rebuttal time, um, and I would reserve the rest of it. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have eight minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Wells.
May it please the court, counsel, Stephen Wells on behalf of Respondent Lycoming. I'm here with my colleague, Tim Dronsky. Chief Judge Guthman did exactly what Rule 702 says a district court judge should do in this case. And he did so under the well-settled law of this court in Doe, in Gobe, in Rochester Wood, and most recently in County of Anoka, where the court made it clear that post-trial motions are exactly the time when a district court is given the thought and the, the thoughtful time and the, um, uh, the time after court to consider very, very complicated subjects. But counsel, I mean, my problem here is that it seems that there was a shifting of the landscape because there was obviously much discussion and argument over the expert's opinion and um, the conclusions reached. But when the district court overrules those objections throughout the course of the trial, obviously the other side is relying on the district court's decision. So to wait until the jury has actually returned a verdict and then overturn oneself, I, I'm, tell me why it shouldn't be a new trial. Well, first off, Rochester Wood settles that question, Your Honor. And this court in Rochester Wood had exactly this situation. It had an expert who had testimony that was admitted during trial. And the court um, later said post-trial that that testimony should not have come in. But for the expert testimony that was improperly admitted, uh, there was no evidence on the point, And judgment as a matter of law was granted. But this counsel, is a settled question but under counsel, Rochester we Wood. Really, it seems to me in Reinhardt, which is about 13 years after Rochester Wood, we really called that into question. Now, granted, it's in a footnote, um, and the ultimate uh, holding in Reinhardt excluded the evidence or the, the testimony. But, I mean, there's a lengthy footnote there that, that really calls into question the wisdom of, of uh, granting uh, Jamal after the verdict has been rendered. I mean, you're, you're really, and it, 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 it it raises the very issues that are at stake here. You're taking that causation decision away from, from the jury at that point. Your Honor, I want to point out a couple of things in response to that question. So first off, in what has to be one of the court's longest footnotes of all time, in Reinhardt, that was dicta because there wasn't, uh, the court decided that the, that the district court erred in its decision not to admit the testimony. But more importantly, um, it was really directed to the unique circumstances of that case where the district court said during the plaintiff's case that it had decided that the plaintiff's expert testimony was inadmissible, but said, I'm going to withhold my ruling on this, let it go to the jury and see what the jury does. And what the court says in that case is, look, if you know that you're not going to admit expert testimony, you need to pull the trigger at that point. You can't, you shouldn't wait till the end. And, and the reason we know that this is directed to this specific circumstance, Your Honor, is because the court cites favorably in that footnote Wright, the Wright and Miller um, passage in which the court, in which Wright and Miller says, look, it's one thing if you know that you're not going to admit the testimony, but when it's in doubt, the proper procedure is to let it go to the, to the jury, and then the court can decide, as this court um, ruled in County of Anoka, that with reflection of time and in a careful way that's not, not available at trial, you can make the decision. So I think actually Reinhardt is not only dicta, but because of its cite to write the Wright and Miller passage, 
it reflects exactly what happened here. Well, counsel, I'm, I've read Rochester Wood very carefully, and it looks to me like what you're relying on there may be dictum as well. It looks, it was a case about a, a fire, yes. and the question was, was the exhaust fan defective? And the, the district court let in the evidence from experts regarding the exhaust fan, the, and then on JMOL, or JNOV back at the time, said there was no evidence of negligence. And the, when this court said, we agree with the trial court. And then it commented that the expert opinion shouldn't have been received because they were based on assumptions not established by the evidence. It doesn't look to me like the district court, after the verdict, excluded the expert opinions. It evaluated the JNOV motion based on all the evidence, including the expert opinions, and then, so the Supreme Court's comment was dictum. What do you, well, what's I don't, your response to that? Yeah, I, don't, I, I guess I don't read it the same way, Your Honor. I mean, it seems to me that the court is very clear that the expert testimony shouldn't have come in and that but for the expert testimony. But did the district court determine the expert testimony shouldn't have come in on, on the JNOV motion? It, does, it right. doesn't suggest that. Uh, pardon me, Your Honor? It doesn't suggest that. Well, but the court, the, the court says it. The court says that it shouldn't have come in. And frankly, whether it's an appellate court or whether it's the district court, it's the same issue. And that raises another issue, Your Honor. And but that before is, we leave Rochester Wood. Pardon me? Before we leave Rochester yes. Wood, um, did the court discuss this question of whether evidentiary rulings during trial could essentially be relitigated on a JNOV motion? In Rochester Wood? Yes. No, I don't think it addresses the question. I don't think it, there's a discussion about that in Rochester Wood that I recall. Okay. Are you familiar with the case of Lamb versus Jordan, a uh, Justice Simonet decision from 1983? I don't know that I have that front of mind, Your Honor. Okay. In discussing the test for JNOV, uh, the, the opinion of the court authored by Justice Simonet said, you take into account all of the evidence that was adduced at trial. Is, isn't that the traditional Minnesota test for JNOV? You look at the entire record and you don't start picking and choosing which parts of the record to, um, to follow? But I don't, think, I, I don't think just based on that quote, Your Honor, that that's inconsistent with what happened here because they, that issue, apparently that issue was not addressed directly here, which is where the court admits in a post-trial, in a post-trial motion that it made a mistake during trial. And there's nothing from what Your Honor has quoted to me that suggests that Justice Simonet had this situation in mind. And, and let me just sort of talk about a practical problem with this, with this position. If this, is the, if this is the law, if a defendant makes a directed verdict motion at the end of the plaintiff's case on the basis that it improperly admitted expert testimony, and the expert in, in the absence of the expert testimony, the plaintiff has not satisfied the, all the elements of the case, at that stage, a district court judge, according to this new theory, would have to say, I made a mistake, but, I'm gonna, but we're going to have to have a do-over. We, we're going to have to have another do-over. And in fact, if we look at this from an appellate standpoint, if the appellate court, this court or, or an intermediate, uh, the intermediate court of appeals, says there was a, an error with respect to the admission of expert testimony and there was no other evidence but for the improperly admitted testimony, this court would have to order a do-over. And that's just, that, that's not happened. Um, Is there a difference there, though, because we actually have a jury verdict here? I mean, one of the, one of the issues that, that I'm struggling with is how do we, you know, you remove a particular piece of evidence, and basically then you're saying, so the jury would have found this a different way. 
I mean, we, do we need to give any credit to the jury? Because how do you know that? How do you know, how can you replay a jury trial and then pull a piece of evidence out and say, well, without this evidence, we know what the jury would have decided? It, it's the I mean, same. I, that, I, I don't see how you do that. Well, because it's the same standard that the court looks on sufficiency of the evidence. It's a judgment as a matter of law standard. You evaluate the evidence that was admitted at trial, that was properly admitted at trial. Does it support the verdict? It's the same standard. So I don't think there's any, any problem, practical problem with doing that. The, um, you know, the other thing that I guess I want to point out about this particular issue is um, the, the notion that a plaintiff, or this could apply to plaintiffs or defendants, um, doesn't put on its best case is, as the U.S. Supreme Court said, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Weiss-Graham case, that that is just not realistic. And here, not only were there specific objections before trial, but as the judge specifically, note, Judge Guthman specifically noted on the transcript, these specific objections specific to the Ehrlich specifications were made during trial. I might cite to a transcript at 1077 on that point. But, but Mr. Hawes, the trial lawyer, specifically made objections during trial. So there wasn't any unfairness here. And I'll point this out too. Counsel, if the con could yes, we sir? just return to Wise Grandma a second? Because in rejecting that fairness argument there, Judge Ginsburg um, said the, the case seems to rely on the Daubert standard, which uh, because the court said since Daubert, parties relying on expert evidence have had notice of the exacting standards of reliability uh, such evidence must meet. But is that different? I mean, why should that case apply here where we don't apply Daubert in, in uh, Minnesota? Well, because that case doesn't turn on the, the, the principle that we're citing, citing it for doesn't turn on the Daubert standard. It turns on the concept that you put your best case in during trial. Um, both parties are, are on notice to do that. Um, and if you don't, you can't come back later if, if it turns out that the court made a mistake in admitting it and claim that, you, that there was unfairness or that there was surprise. Weisskram isn't based on the, that concept doesn't depend on the Daubert standard. It could be other complete, under Weisskram, there could be a complete different basis for the court's determination that um, expert testimony was improperly admitted and Weisskram would still. Although, although counsel, if I may, just again from a fairness and a practicality standpoint, it, it does seem though that there's a, a sense that the district court, and I don't mean, and I'm not saying this, uh, that the district court did this intentionally, but the district court sort of lulled, I mean, there's a, there's a sense that the district court sort of lulled counsel into thinking, this is okay, this evidence is going to be admitted. And it, it almost has a feel, and I know this isn't a criminal case, but it almost has a feel of sort of the invited error doctrine that we, that we sometimes see in criminal cases where the parties uh, send the district court, again, often inadvertently, send the district court down, down a path, and the district court follows that path and makes a ruling, and one of the parties comes back on an appeal and says, oh, that was wrong, shouldn't have done that. Here, it, it almost has a feel that that's reversed, where it's the district court, again, probably inadvertently, or it's hard to say, but the district court arguably lulls them in, along, and then at the end says, oh, I've changed my mind. 
Well, I'd point out two things, Your Honor. First off, again, the objections and were very specific here, so they knew what the challenge was, and they knew prior to trial that the judge said this was a very this was a very close question. He was only provisionally allowing it to go forward. So the, certainly, the plaintiff was on was on notice throughout this. But let me suggest this: it is the trial court. I mean, this this is clearly this issue. I mean, I just couldn't complete. Uh, uh, Disagree with Mr. Magnuson more on this. This issue itself is an abuse of discretion uh, standard and standard of review. And it's the trial court that is in the best position to determine whether the um, mistaken admission of evidence causes unfair surprise or prejudice. It is the trial court who that decision should be entrusted to, subject to an abuse Counsel, of discretion. What, 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 go ahead. Okay. What do you say to... You know, Kind of on a related point, Mr. Magnuson's argument, though, that there's a point at which the trial court here moved from uh, looking at methodology to inserting its own judgment. Um, that I think he called it. There's a difference between method and 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 values, and that when the district court started yes. on the other side yeah. of that, suddenly now it's 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 outside of its role. So two two very important points here, Your Honor. The first is that the court, district court judge Guthman's opinion, which I think, and I know the court, I know the court will read it, is one of the most thoughtful and meticulous opinions that you could ever ask a district court judge to, to author. He's very clear in this opinion that he's not doing that. He's simply holding the expert to the standards that the expert set for himself. He says specifically in, in this that he, it, this isn't a battle of the experts, that he's not substituting his judgment. All he is doing is saying, the expert said, I'm relying on the, on the parameters set by the Lycoming specifications to do the test, and he didn't do it. And there's no doubt that he didn't do it. That's clear throughout the record. So on, but then on that point, um, is the right question to ask here about this expert testimony, whether the fuel pump met the specifications or whether the fuel pump could keep the engine running to keep the plane aloft? Because those seem like two different things, and it they, seemed like the district court made a decision on based on did the fuel pump meet specifications without regard to thinking about whether it could actually work in this particular engine. No, and I th it's both, Your Honor. It's both, and Judge Guthman's very clear it's both. So the court says, all right, now the basis, the, clearly the basis for his disclosed opinion was that he relied on Lycoming's specifications to set the parameters, and that was his testimony through the first part of the trial. Very clear testimony that when he's confronted with the mistake that he made, he relied on the wrong specifications, they aren't Lycoming specifications, he did not test the Lycoming specifications. That's part one of the court's opinion. But the court goes further and says, well, then he switched gears, and he changed to this theory that he'd never said anything about in his pretrial disclosures or even in the trial up to that point. And the expert says, no, I don't care about Lycoming specifications, I care about what the engine requires. And what Judge Guthman very, very clearly says, Your Honor, is that he did not test to the engine specifications either. And Counsel, that is crystal clear from the record, Counsel, if you're looking, I'm looking at, um, at um, the, the interplay where um, Summer is testifying and there is an objection for foundation and the district court then allows um, voir dire um, for them to, on, on Sumner about these issues. There, that goes for a couple of paragraphs. And then at the end, um, the objection is brought up, foundation objection remains. 
and, and it goes into some of the issues that you're raising, and the court says, the court overrules the objection, it goes to wait, period. I, I don't know how we would not allow counsel on either side to rely on that ruling, because that actually, that interplay goes to some of the issues that you're raising um, that the court changed its mind about post-verdict. Because, Your Honor, there was no, there was no evidence that this expert ever tested to the engine requirements. There was no evidence. And let me point the court to the, to the plaintiff's brief or the uh, um, appellant's brief on this. On pages 14 and 40, they say that um, for takeoff and climb, the accident engine demanded at 105 uh, pounds per hour of fuel at pressure between 18 and 28 PSI at full power. And then they have a number of citations. None of those citations support that. There is nothing in the record to suggest that this expert ever testified, ever tested to the requirements of the engine. He said, of, because he's making it up on the fly, he says a number of different things about the engine. There's three variables here. There's pounds per square inch, that's the pressure. There's the, um, there's the amount of fuel that's expressed in pounds per hour. And then there's the RPMs or strokes. That's how, how fast the engine is overturning. Those are the three variables. He never says that the engine required more than 18 PSI. He never says what the pounds per hour is at 18 PSI. And in fact, he tested at 24 PSI, which has nothing to do with the 18 PSI that he said was the minimum required to, to, uh, for this engine to take off. Can I, also can I, never can I just clarify yes, one thing coming yeah. back to the question? So your position is even if the fuel pump met specifications, your client could still be liable if it wasn't the right fuel pump to hold this plane aloft? No, Your Honor. So this is another problem with the theory here. So one of the central fallacies of... I thought that's what you said before, though. Well, no, what I'm saying is the judge... So what Judge Guthman did, again, I'm going back to Judge Guthman's opinion because that's the... I'd like to know what the legal... What, what, you, what the plaintiff has to prove to win their case because we're talking about sufficiency of the evidence here. Yes. And so is it... Do you win whether... If it... If it do you... Can they win even if the fuel pump met specifications for how it was designed, but it wasn't the right fuel pump to keep this plane aloft. Can they win under that circumstance? No, I don't think they can, Your Honor. And, and I guess I'm arguing in the alternative here. Uh, our position is the, the stated expert, the basis for the expert's opinion was there was not sufficient flow of fuel to the plane to keep it aloft. The basis for that was the flow bench test. It is absolutely central to the, to the opinion of the expert as disclosed and as testified to during the trial. And, the, and when it turned out that he never tested to those specifications, that should have been the end of it. That should have been the end of it. Judge Counsel, Guthman, let him exactly go further. exactly what the question is where I was referring to in the transcript. I think it's pages 40 to, through 43. Because during voir dire, Summer is actually asked, so you didn't test with these parameters? He says, no, I did not. Um, and it goes on about the, the pounds per hour, and he clearly says multiple times that he did not test the parameters that, um, um, th what's the name? Your side. I'm just going to say your side. <laughs> it's easier that way. Um, wanted. So I, I, again, and then the court overrules the objection and says it goes to wait. So to me, what you're saying 
would, might have more weight except for the fact that this took place in the middle of the transcript, everything that you're talking about, that exchange, and the court still overruled the objection. But, Judge, but what Judge Guthman does in response to that, Your Honor, is he lets them put on their alternative theory, which is that this engine didn't meet the requirements of the engine. I'm sorry, the pump didn't meet the requirements of the engine. That's theory number two, which comes out at trial for the very first time, and Judge Guthman let it in. And what Judge Guthman is saying in his opinion is, I'm holding him to the standards that he set for himself. Standard number one was the pump didn't meet Lycoming's own specifications. No doubt that he never tested to the specifications. Standard number two, engine doesn't, or pump doesn't meet engine requirements. That was, the, that was the, the theory that he let in when he, made that, um, when he made that statement. But when he looks at that statement, Your Honor, there's no proof that he ever tested to the engine requirements either. He never used the parameters for engine And is, and is, there, a, is there a third theory now, this um, theory about the climbing and yeah. the 2,700 pounds per square inch, or excuse me, uh, 2,700 RPM? which there's no evidence that he tested for that either. That's right. And this is a theory that's come up for the first time before this court and sort of highlights the sort of moving of the goalposts that's been going on since trial, where, one, where there's no evidence to support theory number one. Theory number two comes up. There's no support for that theory either, as Judge Guthman found. Com and now we have a third theory. Counsel, I'd like to get back to the law on Jamal. And you cited a couple times in your argument very favorably a case called County of Minoka. I wonder if I missed something because that case isn't cited in your brief and I did a quick word search of all the briefs and I don't see it. What case is that? Uh, it's the court, maybe I have, it's the it's a court, a case that this court decided on June, on January 23rd, I believe, Your Honor. And it's, it's a case which, in which this court said essentially, look, the whole point of post-trial motions is to give the court time post-trial to consider evidence in these complex issues very carefully an opportunity that they don't have during trial. And that's what Judge Guthman said about his opinion. He said, I can look at this now in the calm of day without having to call balls and strikes. And that's why was, was this that was a, Was that a Jamal case? No, it was a new trial. It was, it was new trial. But the point is the same, Your Honor. Well, but the whole point of the opposing counsel's argument is Jamal is different. They used, most certainly can grant a new trial based on evidentiary errors, but the argument is... Jamal is not the time to relitigate evidence, evidentiary issues. So why, why would that case be relevant on Jamal? Well, because it, for, it is relevant for the point, Your Honor, that the court is the district court during a trial, particularly in a case like this where the expert is changing his, his opinions on the fly, giving new explanations essentially every single day, is calling balls and strikes. And what, what that case says, Your Honor, is that one of the point, one of the reasons for, for the a post-trial motion is to give the court time to reflect. Let me give That's you a hypo hypothetical, which will shock everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> um, let's say that, that a, a product's liability case is underway. The key plaintiff's expert is testifying, and it comes to the ultimate conclusion. And the, the question that's asked of the expert for the ultimate conclusion is both leading and compound. And there's objection made. Objection, leading and compound. The district court says overruled. The expert delivers the opinion, which is the key piece of evidence in the trial. Then on Jamal, the defense reasserts its argument that the uh, question was leading and compound, and the district court says, yep, I was wrong on that. Can, can the district court then grant Jamal on the ground that it made a, an incorrect ruling on a, on a uh, question about leading and compound? 
You know, again, Your Honor, that, I think that would be subject to an abuse of discretion standard. And if it was clear that this was something that was fixable, then, then there might be a different outcome. But it's, it, you would use an abuse of discretion standard to, to make that determination. Here, as Judge Guthman found... But it, wa it wasn't an abuse of discretion because the question actually was leading in compound. But, but the, okay, but the question is, was it, I mean, one of the questions the court could ask, which Judge Guthman asked here is, was this a fixable problem? And that's another point that I think is critical about this. Mr. Magnuson said there was all this other evidence that could have come in. Judge Guthman evaluated that. Do you, and do you agree that if it is a fixable problem, then J-Mall should not be granted? No, Your Honor, I don't. Again, it's, it should... It should be viewed for abuse of discretion, and, and Your Honor hasn't given me enough facts to really be able okay. to say that. Okay. One last question. Um, I started um, by asking Mr. Magnuson about abuse of discretion. When you've got a situation where the district court judge says one thing, says X, on one ruling, and then a diametrically opposite, not X, on essentially the same issue, is, which, which of those decisions is entitled to an abuse of discretion standard? The, both of them or neither of them? The one appealed from, which is the, which is the final decision, the one that is the final order that is appealed from. That's the one that's subject to an abuse of discretion. In just a few seconds I have left, I want to address one other central fallacy, and that is that the methodology here only consisted of the flow bench test itself on the machine. What they're saying essentially is there was a, a flow bench test he did the, he, the machine spit out some numbers, and at that point, that's the end of the methodology. But that's not right. Mr. Summer said specifically that his methodology consisted of not just the flow bench test, but also the application of the parameters. And that is, the, that is why the court can't just stop at, at the numbers that the machine spit out. Those are meaningless unless they are compared to something that is meaningful. And what the court did here was to determine that in this particular instance, which was exactly what this court said it should do in Doe, in this particular instance, the application of those parameters here was not reliable because he didn't test to the engine specifications or the, the pump specifications. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Magnuson, you have eight minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Judge Guthman did not exclude Mr. Summers' opinion because it wasn't disclosed prior to trial. He didn't exclude it because it was different. It was none of those things. If you look at his PowerPoint slides, he laid it out completely. This is what I was looking for. This is the performance spec I was testing to, and it didn't work, and the pump didn't do it, and this is what Lycoming uses when it tests. Now you can argue all you want about that. You can have an expert come in and say that's baloney. But at that point in time it goes to weight. It does not go to admissibility. Lycoming's own witnesses, uh, Jensen and I think Moffat, ad admitted that a healthy pump would meet those specifications. That's I believe at page 3418 to 3422 of the transcript. Now you're talking about how much? Now you're talking about how far off were the specs. It is, it is, with respect, disingenuous to say this was a mistake, this was a change, this was a switch. It wasn't. Um, as to the JMAL procedure, as I said, 
I don't think you have to get there because I think you can say, no, Judge Guthman, you were just wrong. But if you look at it, here's the Coble case that I was talking about. The rule is well established in this state that judgment notwithstanding the verdict will never be granted for errors in either law or procedure committed at trial. As the record stands, the sufficiency of evidence is our only consideration. That's at page uh, 433 and page 434. That's consistent with the discussion in Reinhardt. Jamal has a limited purpose. You look at the evidence and you say, good or bad. New so trial. what you're suggesting, counsel, is we essentially adopt the position that the Idaho Supreme Court did. Yes. And I think if you look at the Kentucky Supreme Court and Savage, although they cited as one um, uh, supporting their position, there they said, no, the only remedy really is a new trial. And that makes sense because you, you go back to a new trial, and if you look at the Amorogius I knew I was not going to say that right. The Second Circuit case that starts with Ammer, uh, uh, where they say the, the remedy is a new trial. Now, that was pre-Weissgram, but it makes sense. It says you go back, and then you see if you can fix it. But I don't think you have to get to that, because I think this opinion was clearly uh, admissible. Counsel, um, was Coble decided... Um it's a 1958 case. Was it before the rules of civil procedure? I can't answer that. I don't know when they were adopted. But the principle... 1951. Well, there you go. But the principle, Your Honor, the principle, you know, I mean, when the rules of civil procedure were adopted, they, they codified what was in large part practice, I mean, if you go back all the way to the territorial laws, we had statutory rules that were simply replaced by... Um, That's, I guess, what I'm really getting at, is I'm just wondering, some of these older cases are based on a statute, and, and I guess I wondered what your position is about whether the statute is different from our current version I, of the I don't the believe rules. it is. My, my position is that the principle articulated in Coble and articulated in Reinhardt and articulated in Coombs is consistent and articulated in Savage from Kentucky. And that is, you don't use, you don't fix the record after the fact and then decide Jamal. If the record's screwed up, you grant a new trial and you see how that comes out. And that clearly should be the rule of law, but I don't think you need to say that because I don't think you have to get to it. So, so, uh your brief talks at some length about the um, power necessary to for the plane to climb. Right. Um, but I look at the evidence supplied by the expert here, and, for example, there's never any testimony that he tested it at the 2,700 RPMs necessary to uh, achieve that. And you also have testimony that from him that he hadn't tested it, but that he thought there might be sufficient power for it to fly. What, what do we do with that? What, what he said was there might be sufficient power to keep it up in the air because even a glider can fly once you get up there. But he said, I was testing for full throttle, and the spec that I had was this. And he got it from Aero, and, and importantly, Lycoming's witnesses say that you need 1,800 PSI at a minimum for full throttle. They admit that because that's how the servo works. It has to have at least that. And, 
at that point in time, once this guy who's got 40 years of experience explains why he did it, they're entitled to cross-examine the heck out of him. But he tested it and he said, the flow bench is one of a whole bunch of things that led me to conclude that the fuel pump didn't supply enough uh, fuel. Do you agree with opposing counsel that uh, the argument with respect to uh, climbing and uh, the um, necessary RPMs, that, that that argument is new here and that it was not made at, uh, at the trial? Not at all. It's right in the transcript. It, it was the testimony of Summers. Let me, let me, here. This is from Judge Guthman. This is Judge Guthman at trial. A jury can conclude based on the evidence adduced, and there are reasonable inferences supporting the conclusion that the engine lost power without necessarily turning off, that due to the propeller evidence, the engine was not under power at the time of the impact. A jury could reasonably infer that other possible causes of engine failure or loss of power due to the mechanical operation of the engine were ruled out. Based on the expert testimony of McSwain and Summer, a jury can conclude that the fuel pump did not meet specifications applicable to it. There is going to be debate, and there is debate, as to whether Mr. Ehrlich's supplied numbers are accurate, whether Mr. Summer understood them, and Mr. Cedar, and whether they misunderstood the use of those numbers. But those inconsistencies are an issue for the jury to resolve, and not for me to resolve as a matter of law, because they're subject to debate. It's true, Mr. Summer testified, that if the fuel pump met Lycoming specifications, it wasn't defective. And he further testified those specifications weren't important to him, but he explained why. And his why was the performance of the pump on the engine. And he further opined that the pump on the engine didn't deliver full flow of pressure because his own testing of the pump and because of the testing of the engine, uh, the dynamometer testing, showed a 40% loss of power. While the glass air manual may indicate you could cruise at 55%, this gets to the question you just asked, it's undisputed this plane had just taken off and was in need of full power uh, at the time of takeoff. It was in a climb. The expert testimony from Mr. Summer is that a combination of factors can influence the performance of an engine, and that's why the engine-powered fuel pump needs to perform as it's designed to perform. They talk about the, the use of the boost pump and how that uh, masked it. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, a reasonable inference from the evidence could support a jury determination that a unique combination of factors caused the defects that already existed in this pump to manifest themselves at this particular time. That was right. That was Judge Guthman. That's why the, uh, uh, his later decision was wrong. With respect, please reverse the Court of Appeals and remand this to the court for consideration of the as-yet-unaddressed new trial issue. Yes, Counsel, Judge. the Chief Justice has allowed me to ask one more question. I, th I think I've pinned down the case that Mr. Wells was referring to. I think it's County of Hennepin versus Bakta. I'm familiar and are you with, familiar that with that case? I am. And does that, does that help or hurt your argument on Jamal? It, it, it doesn't matter on my argument at Jamal. The question in Bakta was whether if you make a motion in limine and it's ruled upon, you had to bring a post-trial motion to challenge it, and the court said, uh, no, uh, you don't. Um, it, that's a procedure, procedural issue about error preservation. It doesn't have anything to do with the analysis of when JMAL is appropriate. Hang on, Justice, Justice Hudson. Um, just on, in terms of the relief that you're requesting, I, I noticed in your brief, and, and I think this is your first choice um, from something you said earlier, you're asking us to reverse and reinstate the jury's verdict. 
That relief does not seem to take into account the, uh, the fact that the district court granted a, uh, a conditional grant of, of, new, of a new trial. Right. I presume that, that, I've never seen that, but I presume that was in light of the J-Mall motion, depending yes. on how that came out. So I'm just wondering how that fits, if, if, or if you're even still requesting that. I mean, how does your request to reinstate the jury's verdict fit with that conditional ruling? I think uh, if I had been more clear, I would have said reverse the decision to strike Summers' testimony, reinstate the jury verdict, and then remand to the Court of Appeals to address the question of whether the conditional new trial was properly granted. You, okay, for, that makes more sense. Then. You recognize that, that still in the picture. Do with it. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much for your time. Thank you, today. counsel. Thanks to all counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll